For 1,300 years, there were caliphs, successors to the Prophet Muhammad. In 1924, however, the last caliph, Abdul Majid II, was sent into exile by Mustafa Kemal, Ataturk, father of the Secular Republic of Turkey. In Egypt, four years later, Hassan al-Banna founded the Muslim Brotherhood, an organization dedicated to reviving the caliphate and uniting Muslims around the world. In its motto, the Brotherhood declares, the Quran is our law, jihad is our way, dying in the way of Allah is our highest hope. What's the state of the Muslim Brotherhood today? How serious a threat does it represent? And what should be done about it? To discuss these and other issues, I'm joined by Sam Tadros, Senior Fellow at the Hudson Institute's Center for Religious Freedom, and John Shanzer, FDD's Senior Vice President for Research. I'm Cliff May, and you're listening to Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are Every no rules. Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981, who are still in the We game. are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. I am fearful for what happens to Turkey now. If you thought that it was dangerous that a coup might have toppled this democracy, think about what this very autocratic man might do. So Sam, let me start with you and start with how this organization was was it conceived, was created, was founded in Egypt, and why don't you talk about that a bit? I think there are uh, two aspects to it. One, the general. I think the Muslim Brotherhood fits into a number of organizations that were all born out of the crisis that the Muslim world faced as a result of the discovery of Western advancement. As the question presented itself, how can we, what went wrong, and how can we become like them? The decline of the great Arab empires, most notably and most recently the Ottoman Empire and Caliphate. And then you have, just after World War I, the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, the collapse of the, uh, of the, of, of the Caliphate. Now we're talking about 1928. We're, think we, we're talking about Hassan al-Banna saying, we have to reconstruct something from the ruins of this. Is, is, is that a exactly. reasonable way to see it? That's the second, basically, thing. So the first is the general framework of the, the there's a, a crisis in the Muslim world. The, the rest of the world has advanced. We have not. Some people are saying this is because of Islam. No, Islam had been successful before. We need to return to Islam in order to be successful in the world again. That's Kamal al-Din al-Afghani. That's Abdu. That's the whole Islamist narrative as it began. And then you have the specific cause that you mentioned, and that's the, the abolishment of the caliphate at the hands of Ataturk in uh, Turkey. And that creates a, a second crisis of this is the only system that we've ever known. Sure, it wasn't always in control. Sometimes there were competing caliphates. Sometimes the guy was just a caliph in name only, as the Abbasids were in Egypt for 300 years. But there was still a caliphate. Part of our confidence that the world was as it should be was the idea that there is a caliph for the prophet and for God on earth. Suddenly we don't have. I think most people, most college students, most don't understand. Many candidates running for public office, it seems that for a thousand years, 
Islamic civilizations, Islamic empires dominated the civilized world, totally dominated, while essentially the Europeans were walking around in animal skins and living in caves. Absolutely. I mean, you know, you had the Europeans going through the Dark Ages while the Islamic world is making advances in mathematics and science and architecture and literature. Uh, they were uh, sitting atop the world. And then you began to watch this precipitous decline. And that absolutely triggered the, the various uh, sort of strains of Islamist thought. What's interesting, though, is that when we talk about the origins of the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, it, it is uh, inextricably tied to the British presence uh, in in Egypt, uh, the hostility that Hassan al-Banna felt for uh, for the for that British presence, uh, understanding that his people were subjugated to the uh, military goals of the Brits at the time. And I don't know if this story is true, Sam, but the the way that I had heard this from uh, a person who let's just say identified as a Muslim Brotherhood uh, member uh, in Egypt, this was decades ago, uh, but he talked about how Albana uh, was fuming, watching uh, Egyptians sitting around in khaki shorts uh, and embracing uh, Western culture, uh, and he was at a coffee shop and one day decided to stand up on top of the table and begin to preach about the need for the Islamic world to reclaim its proper position in the world, mm -hmm. and thus began, at least as this, this uh, individual told me, thus began uh, the, the Muslim Brotherhood movement. From the Islamist perspective, and the Brotherhood certainly belongs to that, the Muslim world was facing two forms of assault, the physical military occupation, but also the westernization, the Egyptians wearing shorts or or the women giving up their traditional headscarves and dresses and adopting Western dresses, for example. All of this for them is an assault on Islamic civilization itself, on Islam in its own land. And for Banna, that was obviously something very important. We also had um, the claims at the time, some of it real, some of it not, of the missionaries' work in Egypt. Mm -hmm. And he devotes a lot of his early writings about the Western missionaries, which he views as attempting to steal Muslim children and convert them to Christianity. But as is everything, the story is always complex. So we have, for example, people more allied with the Brits in Egyptian politics, that's the palace and the minority parties, support Supporting the Muslim Brotherhood as a popular grassroots movement counter to the Waft, which was the national party, which was the one that was anti-British, at least in the 20s and 30s. So we've had actually incidents where the Suez Canal Authority, run by the French at the time, the, the Suez Canal Company, um, donating money to the Muslim Brotherhood branch, for example. So it's it's always a, a mixed picture. In terms of what Hassan al-Banna founded, it is at once an idea, a movement, a network, it's it's, it's, it's kind of everything, isn't it? Yeah. We're everything. We're, we're a sports club. We're an economic company. We're, we're a welfare organization. We're a political party. But we're also none of these. I think the best explanation of what the Brotherhood is came at the hands of the now jailed deputy uh, supreme guide of the Brotherhood, Khairat Shatter, in a speech he gave just maybe a month after he was uh, came out of jail following the 2011 revolution in April of 2011 in Alexandria. And he said, basically, all of these guys all around you call themselves Islam. And they're working for that goal. What differentiates us? Well, we're a jama'ah, we're an organization. And how did we get this idea that this is the way to establish the, the caliphate, the, to establish God's message on earth? From the Prophet himself. He 
got followers. He created a strong jama'ah. This is the way. That's what distinguishes us from the Salafis, from the, the jihadis, from all of these guys. It can probably all be distilled into the motto, the creed of, uh, of the brotherhood. Islam hu al-hal. Islam is the solution. Mm. It's the solution for everything. Right. Whether it's politics, whether it's sports, whether it's science, it doesn't matter. Right. This was the, the sort of vision that Hassan al-Banna had. Um, and it took off like wildfire. Right. The organization is created in 1928. Uh, it quickly spreads throughout Egypt um, and then spreads to other parts of the Arab world. Today, you now have a movement that is operating in at least it's estimated 92 different countries. Mm -hmm. um, still, I think today, if not the most popular, maybe the second most popular organization within uh, the Muslim world takes on lots of different flavors. But at the end the of the Hizbut Tahrir, I believe, is the number one in the world, and, yeah. and Ikhwan is number two. But they, they, you know, I think they're they're neck and neck is yeah. probably, I think, a, a good way of of describing it. Um, but you know, what you now have is an organization that is loosely based on this idea that Islam is the solution for everything. Yeah. It takes on different flavors in every country, right? Different uh, elements of nationalism and Islamism, right? That that sort of balance is different from one one country to the next, one branch to the next. But this is. Is there uh, the the theme throughout? Before we move out of the history into the uh, into a, a deeper dive on ideology, uh, Said Qutb is another major figure. Of, uh, interesting to me because you we think of oh well, we need his engagement because we'll understand better. He came to the United States, went to uh, Colorado uh, to, to a rural town, Greeley, I believe it was. Um, I know even nowadays, that's a, a very calm, peaceful place of nice religious people. And he was shocked at what he saw at a, at, in the church there, dancing together, holding men and women, holding each other's bodies. He, I mean, he was repelled by it. And what did he contribute to, to the Muslim Brotherhood? So, I mean, we can add, it wasn't just Qutb in the 19, late 40s. Uh, Mohammed Morsi, the former president of Egypt, joined the Muslim Brotherhood while living in the United States. In Egypt, he had not been a member of the Brotherhood. He came to the United States, was studying in California, and there he was recruited by a Palestinian, Musa Abu Marzul, who later becomes the leader of Hamas, into this small brotherhood Usra family. And then, so radicalization, I mean, the West is not, uh, the, they won't come to the West and change their ideas completely. Definitely. No, I think part of the genius of Hassan al-Banna and the original uh, brotherhood that he formed was that he gave a very clear and rigid end goal. And then he left room um, deliberately, I would say, for anything goes in the middle as a way to reach that goal. The reason is he didn't want to create, while it's a structure, organization, membership, it's hard to join all of these, but it's also important to attract as many people as possible. If we take a position on Shia, for example, Shias are going to reject us, so we don't take a position. We're open to everyone who says he's a Muslim, and through that, it became a, a loose network a rigid organization, but also a loose network that adopts different pragmatic approaches according to the moment. And that's one reason to explain the, the, the spread throughout the countries and success. What you've just described is, is the way that you could probably describe a lot of utopian ideologies um, and, and dangerous ones at that, whether socialism or communism, right? That you have kind of an end goal but how you get there, they leave very much subject to interpretation. Um, and, and, you know, you can just see some commonalities across some of these ideologies.
Yusuf al-Karadari. He is Egyptian, based in Qatar. He is a sort of a spiritual leader. He preaches and even though there are all these, as we're going to discuss, all these different Muslim Brotherhood organizations and groups, and they listen to him, what has he brought to the uh, table? So, Cardale, uh, as far as we know, has broken with the organization in terms of actual member and organization. That happened early on because he thought he would get a better position than he actually did, or that he could aspire to become a supreme guide or like that. Um but his growing role is also the result of the decline of the International Guidance Council. In the old time, there used to be not just the local guidance council, but an international one. One member of each country, the Egyptians would uh, most of the years had a majority, and the supreme guide for the world had to be the Egyptian one, because it's the mothership, it's the main organization. And that organization was co- quite powerful and influential in the sense of not just because many of these guys met in London or in many of these ex- exiled cities that they lived in, but because it could then push for change on the ground. There was maybe 10 years ago a struggle within the Jordanian Muslim Brotherhood that was settled by the intervention of the Egyptian Supreme Guide, who's also the international one. Now, with the decline of the Egyptian organization and with the rise of the other organizations and people saying, why should we always follow this Egyptian guy? I mean, it's not like it's the same like the Arab League where the secretary general has to be an Egyptian. So we've had the decline of this central office that was operating from London on a daily basis by, run by the secretary general of the international arm, Ibrahim Munir, and Qardawi emerging as an alternative spiritual gives guidance to these guys. So I don't think he exerts any organizational influence, but he has a lot of his words matter. People listen when he talks. Real ramifications, obviously, when you have somebody who is uh, providing justification for Hamas, for example, to carry out suicide bombing. And so this is a guy who's had uh, a perch uh, on Al Jazeera, which is a widely right. watched television station based in Qatar. And of course, and controlled, I would say, by the Qatar. That's right. Uh, and of course, Qatar is, is one of the larger proponents of the Muslim Brotherhood around the world, perhaps the Muslim Brotherhood's piggy bank, uh, as it has bottomless wealth, uh, and it has supported the Brotherhood as it has threatened to topple countries around the region, and Kardawi has been a mouthpiece of sorts uh, for the Qataris. By the way, there are those who support the Muslim Brotherhood in full or in part, but to actually be a Brotherhood member, that's not quite so easy, is it? No, it's not like joining the Republican or Democratic Party where you, you sign something when you're doing your car license or something. No, it's a it's a, um, um, a long process commitment. They usually recruit people at a very young age, uh, maybe even before university. Soccer uh, games would be the most um, uh, common approach. They gather the youth, let's play soccer, let's pray together. They start after some time, they start telling them, were the Muslim Brotherhood, would you be interested? And you feel a sense, I mean, the word brotherhood is so important here. Mm. It's really a brotherhood. There are bonds that are created. You belong to an usra, a family composed of five people that you meet every single week Mm. to read the Quran, memorize, to read some of Hassan al-Banna's letters or others' writings. You start developing human relations with them. Maybe you marry one of your brother's sister um, because, you know, the family. Maybe you're going to end up doing some financial investment together 
together with one of your brothers from that Usra. The links, these bonds are so important and they create this very strong solidarity that has allowed the group to withstand all the attacks and repression that it has faced. Do you know groups in the United States that are either sympathetic with the brotherhood or are seen as brotherhood affiliated, CARE for example comes to mind. Are, they, are their members actual members in the way you describe, or is it more a matter of affiliate? We, we just don't know the answer to that. That members of the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood, the Syrian as well, when they escaped repression in those countries, I'm talking about the 50s and the 60s and later on, established centers. The mosque in Munich, for example, was such a center. Um, others came as uh, students in the United States. They started uh, establishing student organizations. And these had links, these were founded by Brotherhood people. I think throughout the years, these links have become less so as these organizations have adopted more American Muslim concerns about the freedoms and rights of Americans. Some of them still maintain the international concerns. They still um, uh, talk about the Palestinian issue, the everything there. But I think that we've had an Americanization of these many of these organizations, although when a big thing happened, in, say, a place like Egypt, the Rabaha massacre, for example, we find all of them organizing events and demonstrations about them. And when, one thing that I think is important to note is that in the, like, let's say 1980s and, and 1990s, uh, some of these groups were more inclined to engage in what we would describe as illicit activities, support for Hamas and the like. Um, then came a time where we began in this country to crack down on these groups. So we saw, the, you know, for example, some of these groups being rolled up in the Holy Land Foundation case where uh, we found money that was going to Hamas and the FBI got involved. Uh, in some cases, these groups were identified as uh, unindicted co-conspirators, which was kind of a shot across the bow. Uh, and what I think that was, was a message to them that they needed to change their model. And when we talk about the Americanization of these groups, what I think that really means is their understanding of what they can and can't do uh, that would trigger FBI engagement. And so over time, they have tried to cast themselves as people who could help in countering radicalization, um, even when at their core, their ideology isn't exactly a peaceful one. And so they found this very strange uh, kind of middle ground with American laws, law enforcement. And you saw recently the video that circulated through memory of the the anti-Semitic incitement of, by a group in Philadelphia, for example. I mean, there are very problematic things definitely yeah. there. Still the glorification of you know Palestinian violence against Israelis in particular. All of these sorts of things are still at their core, but yet they have found a way to balance between triggering law enforcement and maintaining what they would describe as activism. And this is the sort of strange state of the Muslim Brotherhood right now in this country. And I should mention, in case uh, listeners don't know this, that Hamas is a Muslim Brotherhood branch. It is one that has been designated by the U.S. as a terrorist organization. That's already the case. So if you're pro-Hamas, you're pro-Muslim Brotherhood and pro-Muslim Brotherhood in one of its terrorist incarnation. It's probably important to just actually note that when Hamas was created in 1987, they officially determined that they were breaking off from the Brotherhood because the Brotherhood in, uh, in, in the Palestinian territories was officially nonviolent and wanted to maintain that course. 
um, whether that was a fiction or not, we could debate it. But when Hamas was created, they said, we're going to become a splinter of the brotherhood. We're going to break off so that we can carry out violence and do it in, in our own name. And an important point that I think is often missed, people talk about branches of the brotherhood that have renounced violence. Tell me if I'm wrong here. It's not like they've become Quakers. They, th It's more like they think violence in our situation is not useful, is not strategic, could be dangerous for us. We're not going to use violence. We're, that's, not, that's not our method. But it's not a matter of principle or morality here. So it's not a renunciation in that sense. And I think it's often people hear, oh, they've renounced violence. Ah, they've embraced peace. They're just like our peace movement, right? Yeah. It's not that. Uh, I mean, you cannot be a peaceful movement if your very slogan, founding slogan is jihad is our way. It, it's sort of they want to – it's like you know, electric guitar, acoustic guitar. They want to suggest <laughs> that there's also nonviolent jihad, people who are for a struggle for what they're not, they don't it's necessarily like say. Like, you know, kind of like yoga. No, but what's I mean, the struggle for? The struggle is for supremacy. The struggle is for domination of Islam over everybody else. Daily incidents of violence have never been renounced, have always been there. I'm talking, for example, uh, even before the change of government, the coup in Egypt, uh, when the Brotherhood was in power during the demonstrations, uh, people threw Molotov cocktails on the police. Yeah, I mean, that's not non-violent struggle. People engaged in violent acts all the time time, clashes between brotherhood demonstrations and anti-brotherhood demonstrations. So the use of violence, street violence, has always been there, has never been uh, um, rejected out of hand. But we're talking here that they reject terrorism. Here, there's something very important. They renounce the use of it in a slogan, or they, they make that statement. They've never taken responsibility for the previous acts. So I would like to know, okay, you reject violence. What about the attempted assassination of Nasser in 54? Do you take responsibility? Why did it happen? Was it a mistake? Why did some brothers decide to do it? Does it mean there's something wrong in the way you're upbringing your brothers? So they've never attempted to deal with these serious questions of the, the widespread use of violence, of terrorist acts throughout their history, and just offer you these statements, we don't engage in terrorism. And I think there's also just the question of how uh, we would describe the, the Brotherhood as kind of a gateway to jihadism. And that, that really is a trend that has to be explored. When we talk about Hamas and the fact that that was a splinter group, uh, when you think about the formation of al-Qaeda uh, in the late 1980s, it was Abdullah Azam, a Palestinian Muslim brother, that basically inspired that with, uh, with uh, Osama bin Laden. Uh, we have seen one uh, radical ideologue, uh, terrorist leader after another, embrace the teachings of Hassan al-Banna, of Said Qutb, and others from within the Brotherhood. So so you see that this is not entirely a nonviolent ideology. It just is the manifestation of it in, in, in the, the actual brotherhood branches. Yeah, and this idea of a gateway too suggests that it's benign, but it could lead to worse things. But you can't say it's a gateway to jihadism since the Muslim Brotherhood is based on the imperative jihad. And let's understand what jihad means. Again, jihad means a struggle against the against infidel society, against Judeo-Christian civilization, against the West and its domination, against 
all of that. So, you know, if it's marijuana, it's still a drug, uh, but it can lead to harder things, right? And that's kind of what we're talking about. Even if about it doesn't, here. I would say, and I'm not saying it's about marijuana, that's another discussion, <laughs> that even if all you're doing is puffing away at Muslim Brotherhood, you're still engaged in Islamic supremacism, jihadism, Islamism, all of those things, even if you don't take the step. Well, even, yes, it is easier for you and I, any, any of us here, to go to dinner with a member of the Muslim Brotherhood because he wears a tie and a jacket probably and doesn't have necessarily a long beard and knows which fork to use and you can have a and likely intellectual who's gone to good university easier than some Salafi jihadi which we'll talk about it maybe not maybe it's I'd rather have lunch with the Salafi and be more interesting more interesting be, and probably better food too but uh, <laughs> <laughs> no there's one thing you mentioned Hassan Banna you mentioned Said Qutb and then you mentioned Qardawi um in reality, the Brotherhood has had a vacuum of ideas. The end goal is clear. You have the tracks of Banna, you have the writings of Qutb, as controversial as they are. They have nothing. And that vacuum cannot continue for an organization that's dedicated to an ideological goal and, and mission that um, attempts to indoctrinate its members. So the result has been the slow filling of that vacuum by others' ideas. So you might be a Brotherhood member, but you listen to the sermon of Salafi uh, preachers all the time. Mm. So we've had a slow seeping of ideas. We've had a human interaction. The Brotherhood goes to the Gulf, interacts with the Wahhabis there. Links are formed. Ideas are exchanged. So we cannot talk here about a Brotherhood idea that's completely separate from the jihadi work. They interact all the time. And I think this is confusing to a lot of people. Uh, a Wahhabi and a Muslim Brotherhood, their ideology is not, on the face of it, very different. Their strategy for how you succeed in this effort may be different. Is that is that fair? Yeah, I mean, Wahhabism or the, the general Salafi framework has been dedicated much more to purification from within than to changing the outside. The, uh, the idea has been that we need to change ourselves by returning to Islam. That's the most important thing. While the Brotherhood approach has focused much more on the, the establishing government as a means. It's often described that the Brotherhood takes a, a down-top approach. Yes, they work on individuals, but the end result is the government that will change everyone. The Salafis attempt to work on individuals 100%, and that differentiates them. So you have Egypt, which is an authoritarian and fairly secular Muslim, for sure, but anti-Muslim Brotherhood, vehemently so, and telling people like President Trump, we think you should be designating the Muslim Brotherhood. Right. Then you have Saudi Arabia, Wahhabi, um, pragmatic. They also want Muslim Brotherhood designated. Then you have the United Arab Emirates, modern Muslim um, friendlier to the West, they want the Muslim Brotherhood uh, designated. Then you have Turkey, theoretically secular, but not so much so now under Erdogan. Erdogan is pro-Muslim Brotherhood, but Turkey is a member of NATO. Qatar uh, tries to be friendly with the West, tries to be friendly with Iran, tries to be friendly with everybody, supporting the Muslim Brotherhood. This is a confusing picture just within the Arab and Muslim world. For any of us, is it not? It is. Um, look, what I would say is the the reason why you see the opposition in these Arab states to the Muslim Brotherhood uh, is not their opposition to Islam. Uh, it's their opposition to the admixture of politics and religion in ways that they don't sanction. 
In other words, they want to be able to control the narrative. And in, in places like Saudi Arabia, they don't want people talking about politics, period. Right? And they want their interpretation of Islam to be the one that is an accepted version. And they don't want outside influences. They don't want outside powers involved. And so the brotherhood becomes a threat. It's a threat there. Uh, it's a threat to the Emirates in, in, in Bahrain as well. Um, in, in Egypt, I think also to, to a certain extent, even though we might say that up until recently anyway, it's been a little bit more open in terms of, uh, of the political discussion. With, uh, with Qatar and Turkey, they see the Muslim Brotherhood as a vehicle to gain power. And we saw this during the Arab Spring, that as governments began to sort of teeter, that they saw an opportunity to insert the Brotherhood as a vehicle for them to have more influence and power. And you saw these other Arab states trying to counter that and block it because they wanted the traditional order that had existed before the Arab Spring. So there is certainly an element of a geopolitical struggle that's taking place now with in the Sunni world, the traditional Sunni Arab bloc and the Muslim Brotherhood bloc led by Qatar and Turkey. Jordan and Morocco. Now, those are both states that have, I would say, um, a, a vision of Islam that is not bellicose. And yet both those countries do not want President Trump or this administration to designate the Muslim Brotherhood. Why? I would suggest because the Muslim Brotherhood exists in both those countries, participates in the government in both those countries, but has been, I'm not sure what the right word is, domesticated, tamed, neutered, uh, reined in carefully, and they think this will just be, so you've got so you've got the, the Egyptians and the Saudis saying to Trump, this is a bad guy group. You've got a designated, you've got the Jordanians, the Moroccans saying, you know what? It's, this is going to be very inconvenient for me if you do that, and I'm the best friend you got in the Muslim Arab world, don't you think? And that puts this administration in a difficult situation. Now, I think we believe that Trump is sort of inclined to thinking maybe we should designate this group in some way as it certainly wants to make the clear the case that this is a bad guy group, that this is a group hostile to America, hostile to American interests, and one way to do that is through the designation process. Is that correct? I think that's right. And I think the challenge is going to be for this administration or specifically for the bureaucracy to be able to establish the case that this is a homogenous group, that it is the same across every one of these 92 countries where it's operating, that it's a top-down hierarchical organization where they're taking orders and violence is being carried out in each one of these branches. That's the difficult part of all of this. And, uh, I, you know, again, I, I mean, I've, I've been writing about it. This, I've been speaking about this. I don't think there's a problem in making that assessment at all. I think we should just be prepared for the bureaucracy to come back and say, look, we just we see this as a heterogeneous organization. We see allies that have Muslim Brotherhood branches, as you mentioned, Jordan, Morocco, Tunisia, et cetera, that we just can't disrupt. We, we could see real political fallout. And that's why at FTD, uh, we've been talking about treasury designations which are much more modest in their scope. Treasury designations as opposed to? As opposed to a State Department, State Department foreign Department. terrorist organization, which is a blanket designation of the entire network. And are those the two options? Is there a third option the president can use? Uh, those are the two if you're looking to sanction. Uh, you could also, by the way, see Congress come out and say that uh, that you know they, it views the Muslim Brotherhood as a hate group. Mm -hmm. That it is a you know that it's its ideology is one that is antithetical to our 
um, ideals. For example, here in the United States, it wouldn't be necessarily binding, but it would be make a clear statement to the Brotherhood that they wouldn't exactly be welcomed in the United States. But the Treasury approach is one that allows us to look specifically at the smaller groups, the component parts of the Brotherhood, and to probably build an edifice of sanctions over time um, that could eventually lead us to the broader network. John, let me let me just get clear. What's your, what, what's your policy re- recommendation in terms of designating the Muslim Brotherhood? I, I would say that if it meets criteria, it should be designated. And it's for that reason that I think the State Department should conduct an assessment. And it should find out whether it meets our legal criteria to become a foreign terrorist organization. If we can prove from the top down that this organization is involved in violence, then absolutely it should be added. My concern is that the bureaucracy is not geared for that. It's too big. It's unwieldy. Uh, there was a, a, a saying in the FBI where they said, big case, big problem, small case, small problem, no case, no problem, right? And so what we're talking about is a big case and a big problem. The there are criteria on the books that have to be met. Otherwise, they come back and say we couldn't do it. Right. And we don't want it to fail. What we want to do is to be able to begin to sort of block off pieces of this brotherhood network that do meet criteria. It's our mandate. It's what Treasury should be doing. They should be looking for financiers of terrorism, the people who are supporting through technological or material ways terrorist organizations. They designate organizations, specific ones, and individuals. Specific yeah, or individuals. companies or companies. charities for that matter. In other words, find the nodes and begin to identify them. And over time, what we might find is that this all builds into a bigger picture. And and I, on that, it's instructive to just look at what happened with the IRGC, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps of In Iran. Right. That's right. So what we did there is, you know, over the years, the Treasury Department designated elements of the IRGC, right? They were tied to terrorism, tied to missile proliferation, all these other illicit activities. And then eventually, when the Trump administration decided that it wanted to look at FTO criteria, it was undeniable that it met that criteria and FTO was legal. This is the kind of step-by-step pragmatic approach that the U.S. government may need to consider if the broader FTO blanket designation fails. And again, you don't want to just try the FTO thing, have it fail, and then not have an alternative. Yeah, well, I mean, one thing you don't want to happen is to have an effort to designate the Muslim Brotherhood, have because of regulations and laws and requirements, have it fail, because then what you will hear from people is you see they've been found innocent. Not that we didn't have the evidence to find them not guilty, but they've been found innocent. They're okay. And you also hear people say, and you don't want that, much better to say, well, there are various Muslim Brotherhood groups that have been designated, and an effort is being made to find evidence on other ones, and they will be over time. That also might divide a little, kind of put a wedge into the organization rather than unify them. We're all the same, so what's the point? Is that true? No, I think that the state approach, as you said, has this danger that the Muslim Brotherhood is going to come out and say, we are innocent, we are not terrorists. And that would be, give them a huge victory. Uh, something, in a sense, on a smaller scale happened when the Brits did the, the investigation on the Muslim Brotherhood and that report came out. It was very damaging about the Brotherhood's ideology, but it did not call for a designation, and that was used by them as, see, we're innocent, we don't conduct violence. I think the Treasury approach that Jonathan suggested is the right approach, and you get them one by one. We have clear cases where 
somewhere. Individual X has committed a terrorist act. He belonged to the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, Mahmoud al-Ahmadi, who's a young Brotherhood guy who um, joins, goes through the phases of the various special op committees that they form to conduct violent attacks until he finally joins the groups and kills the um, Egypt's attorney general. And he receives training, for example, by Hamas in Gaza, spends three months in Gaza to be trained on how to do explosives. So we we get them one by one, the Al Capone way and not anything else. We get them through the taxes and not through the crime. We're not necessarily only looking at financing. You can actually still identify, and we've we've looked at a couple of different groups that probably qualify already. Uh, the the Libyan Hezbollah Watan, the Watan Party, uh, the Islah Party in Yemen. These are two organizations that have, are are part of the Brotherhood matrix that also have very close ties to Al Qaeda and have actually engaged in violence and have actually been part of that violent network. So it's not only Al Capone. I mean, you can certainly go after them for the financing, but you can begin to designate some of these groups for their violence itself. And that's an important thing to be able to establish as well. Again, rather than giving the broader network the free pass because it's so difficult for the bureaucracy to digest, digest these little pieces one at a time, make it clear to the public what we're looking for, and perhaps even teach the Arab world how to identify good targets with us. That would be incredibly important, and I think that's been a missing component when we talk to the Emiratis or the Saudis, uh, the Bahrainis or the Egyptians. They don't fully understand our system or our criteria. Right, because they, they don't need that criteria in their countries in order to do these designations. They just make a, essentially a pronouncement. Now, some people will argue and say, you know, we should be spending more time worrying about white supremacism because, after all, we've had white supremacists take a shoot, shoot up synagogues and they have and other places. The difference, it seems to me, is most of these white supremacists are, are sort of lone wolves. They're not going to meetings. They're not joining organizations. If they are, absolutely, FBI should be exploring that. But there is nobody who makes the case that I know that, well, there are moderate white supremacist groups and we should be careful about them. That's okay. But people are making the argument there are moderate Islamist supremacist groups and we should make a distinction. And that's part of, I think, what's being missed is at the very least Muslim Brotherhood is Islamic supremacist. And if we're opposed to supremacism, we should surely be opposed to it in all its forms. I think the important thing to note here is that we, we can't uh, criminalize these ideas ideas uh, necessarily unless we see violence, right? Then you can actually begin to do designations and the like. But coming out and stating that this is Islamic supremacy and that this is an ideology that we're looking to combat and that we see this as part of the broader problem, that battle of ideas that we've been flailing at over the last uh, 18 years, I think that's an important part of the discussion that I think you're right. It's, it's, it's been absent. There are many people who um, show concern for Islamophobia and its rise in the United States and any other places in the West. Those same people tend to pretend or tend to tell us that we shouldn't discuss organizations like the Muslim Brotherhood because of we'll be accused of Islamophobia. I think there's nothing more insulting to a Muslim than to suggest that these people are the only and true representatives of his religion. That, that itself is the Islamophobia. That itself is dealing with every Muslim as if every Muslim will be impacted by our discussion of these groups, as if talking about them will drive every Muslim to violence. That's actually extremely problematic. 
I have uh, many more questions, and there's much more we could explore, but I think we uh, this has been a good introduction, a kind of a Muslim Brotherhood 101 for anybody who's listening. So thank you, Sam, very much for coming in and helping us with this. Thank you, John. Always a pleasure. And thanks to all of you. I hope you've, uh, you've, you've been edified and entertained by this. And thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. If we could be doing better, tell us. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas. Policy at FED.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at FED.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May. You've been listening to Foreign Policy.